All right. Well, good morning. Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Here on YouTube, we're going to get started here. If you could get settled in, find your seats. I know we're we're trying to be very punctual these days. Feel bad breaking up everyone's conversations, but definitely feel free to hang out afterwards and and chat. Those of you who are online, welcome as well. Hopefully, we'll be you know looking forward to seeing more and more people coming back to the building uh, this spring and summer as people are vaccinated and and restrictions are loosening a little bit. You know, we still have plenty of room here in the building. Uh, the last few weeks, uh, we've had plenty of room. So definitely, if you feel comfortable coming out, we'd love to see you here in person. Um, those of you who still can't, we get it, and we hope that you're still um, able to um, benefit from the from the online service. Uh, so last week, Mike was able to join us uh, for the service, but there was no proof of it because you weren't <laughs> on the video. So now he's actually on video. There's proof, um, and he's actually gonna. We're gonna be preaching together this morning. So I'm I'm very thankful that you're still feeling well enough to be here. Laura's actually able to be here with you this morning, so praise God yes. that both of you are still on the mend. Uh, and I actually, this is my first time being here with my whole family, um, with Ellie and Eden here, so that's exciting for us as well. But there's no proof, because they're there not is the camera, no proof. So <laughs> we won't make you prove it. No. You can stay there. Um, so yeah, we're, we're excited uh, to be here. Uh, I'm excited. To, to preach with Mike. We are going to be uh, wrapping up the book of Ezra this morning. Um, and this is the first time we've actually done a tag team in quite a while, at least a couple months, maybe three months or so. I think in person, it's been a long time because... It's especially to be doing it yeah. in person. Yeah, we did it for Jonah, I know. Um, but yeah, this is going to be fun. Um, we're going to be yeah wrapping up the book of Ezra. So... I'm, I'm going to go ahead and just pray to get us started, and then we'll one announcement. Get oh, yes, and there's one announcement. I knew I was forgetting something. <clears throat> um, the, the deacons have scheduled a, um, what do we call it, a, a work day. It's a spring cleanup work day, May the 15th. So that's in a few weeks from now. That's a Saturday, I believe, right, May 15th. So if you're able to come and, and help out with some projects around uh, I'm not sure what the exact list of projects is yet. Maybe in the next couple of weeks we can get that list. Um, it'll be stuff around the building, cleaning up out, outside and, and raking and things like that, I'm sure. So if you're able to help with that um, and you, if you want any other details, contact Doug Sayer um, or Jason Allen, and they'll be looking for some extra hands. All right, anything else that I'm forgetting? Okay, let's, let's pray together and then, then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for this beautiful day, and thank you for all of us who are able to be here, uh, that I can be here with my family, that Mike and Laura are, are well enough to be here, um, and just for the blessing that it is to, to gather as a family in person, uh, and just for the, the reminder that the last uh, year and a half has been that um, we really shouldn't take that blessing for granted. Uh, so I do just thank you for that blessing that we have of, of being together this morning. Lord, I pray that this time that we have now um, in your word would be a beneficial time for all of us, that you would prepare our hearts, soften our hearts to be receptive to the truth of your word, um, even if it's a, a piercing truth and even if it's an uncomfortable uh, 
truth that stares us in the face sometimes um, that sometimes that's needed uh, and that that may be the case today with with this passage that we're looking at so I just pray for your for your blessing over this time and that you would uh, guide our hearts our words our thoughts as we as we share in your word together in Jesus name I pray amen amen I want to start by thanking David for just jumping right in um, after Laura and I tested positive for COVID, they, just after having a newborn and, uh, and having a couple of weeks to try to figure out what that life is like. And then we test positive and David, uh, your willingness to just jump in was and, and just take over whatever needed to be done has been uh, meant a lot to me, very huge blessing. And so thank you uh, very much for that. Um, we're tag teaming today. If you're wondering why we're tag teaming, it's because I'll have to catch my breath several times during the message because I still don't have all of my wind yet. So David's like, I'll, I can do a lot of the reading and I can help out with this. And it's like, okay, but I know he has a lot of great stuff to add to it because I've been reading his notes as well. So uh, looking forward to doing so you this You have together. had kind of a long time to, to steep in this passage. I have. So I know God's put a lot on your heart, so I'm excited for you to, yeah, this to actually, share. Yeah, this passage actually was one that uh, God was putting on my heart, the, the concepts of this passage. Uh, while I was in the hospital, and so I had a lot of time to really think about it and pray about it. Um, if you remember in the book of Ezra, chapters 1 through 6, there was this large group of Jews that went back to Jerusalem. So they went from, from Babylon, and they traveled back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And there was about 50,000 of them that traveled. That's a pretty good-sized group. That's like the population of Watertown um, that traveled back 900 miles on foot to get back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. Um, in Ezra chapter six and a half, otherwise known as the book of Esther, um, we realize that those 50,000 Jews, plus all the other Jews in the 127 provinces of Persia, were threatened to be annihilated because of one man's um, ego, really, because of one man's ego. And they were spared um, not because of Queen Esther, per se. She was a part of the plan, and not just because of Mordecai and the decree, though he was a big part of that plan, but because of the gracious hand of their God, which never is said in the book of Esther. Matter of fact, the book of Esther never even mentions God at all, but you're meant to see that in the way that God is working through, through all of the circumstances and all the coincidences. Um, so last week, David took us into chapter 7 and 8 and taught us about Ezra, the scribe and priest, and his ministry of restoring worship at the temple. And in chapter 7 and 8, we learned that another roughly 3,000 people, wasn't that the number? About 3,000? 3,000, 3, 4,000 maybe, yeah. Um, went back to Jerusalem. It took them four months to make the journey uh, with a lot of money and no, no army to protect them. And they went back to Jerusalem, this group. Um, actually, I'm wrong, because some of, most of them never lived in Jerusalem. They went to Jerusalem for the first time, most of them, um, to reestablish worship. And while offerings were made in the temple, that was really not the extent of worship. And we have to understand that to understand what happens in chapters 9 and 10. To reestablish worship included the sacrifices, but there's a lot more to worship than just giving gifts or giving sacrifices to God. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, we read the following. Um, when 
when Samuel confronts Saul, uh, he says, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? Look, to obey is better than sacrifice. To pay attention is better than the fat of rams. And though going through the motions of, of worship, going through the motions of church can be a good thing, but only if it's paired with a heart and a life of obedience. Uh, certainly, there's nothing wrong with sacrifices. God commanded them. Certainly, there's nothing wrong with going to church service. You are the church. Remember that? There's nothing wrong with going to, the, to a church service, to a public worship experience. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. It's a great thing to do. We're commanded to meet together for that. But to do either of those, devoid of obedience to God, is just empty religion. Can we agree on that today? It's just empty religion. To just go to a service and go through the motions and do what's expected, but not have a heart of obedience to God in the process. It's just to perpetuate religion, but it's not what true worship is all about. In that verse that you just read, 1 Samuel 15, 22, the great verse to remember um, is even just by itself out of context. It's a great just kind of mantra, a great truth. Uh, to obey is better than sacrifice or, you know, to obey God is better than just doing good things. And Saul learned that the hard way in that story, um, in that context. And that's where he lost his favor with God and lost his, his kingship um, as far as his, his lineage and his kingship. So it's a great story. Um, and yeah, that was the major turning point for King Saul was kind of losing everything by choosing to save sacrifices for God instead of obey what God had told him to do. So, yeah, and, and if you study that passage, one of the things you'll find is he was actually offering sacrifices. It, it wasn't that he wasn't doing good things. He wanted yeah. to do good things. He just wasn't doing it the way God said. And so that obedience, as opposed to just the activity, is so mm -hmm. important. So when we reach chapters 9 and 10 of the book of Ezra, which we're going to read through, so if you have your Bibles, flip over to there. If you have an app, just tap on over to Ezra chapter 9. We're going to find out that the, uh, the, the no longer exiles, the ones that have returned to Jerusalem, the ex-exiles, ex <laughs> I think it should be like a TV show, um, how they choose to handle the reality that some of them have not been obedient and have even adopted a lifestyle of disobedience. And the question that they have to ask, and the question that, that I'm hoping that we will ask ourselves today, is when confronted by the reality of our own sinfulness, how do we react? What's our response when we see the sin in our own lives? Now, the first group that returned to Jerusalem in Ezra chapter 1 through 6, they faced opposition, but they did rebuild the temple. And, and it appears that it took, what is it, about 80 years between chapter 6 and, and chapter 7. That, that, 60 years <clears throat> between... Six and seven, but 80, because there was that delay. So 80 from the beginning. Oh, from the beginning, Ezra okay. To seven. So about 60 years between them. Mm -hmm. And in that 60 years, there was need for Ezra to show up on the scene and to teach the Torah, to reestablish worship, sacrifices, festivals, and the other things prescribed by the law of Moses. And the ministry of Ezra, we learned last week, uh, as David shared, was, was to um, study, obey, and teach the word of God. Those were the three things that Ezra was known for to study, obey, and teach the Word of God. And, and apparently, he did a good job of it. So that would have been the Torah at that time, the Pentateuch, yes. the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, would have been the, the primary uh, 
scriptures that he would have been sharing at that time. Um, so they'd also just refer to books of Moses, of Moses, and even Jesus, when he refers to Moses, he's referring to those books. To, yep. Yeah. And David reminded us that this is the calling of every generation of God followers. It's including the church, you and me, is to study, obey, and teach the word of God. So the challenge with choosing to make that our life ambition is that when you study and then go to obey the word of God, it's inevitable that the word of God will reveal things in our lives that don't line up with God. As much as we like to think we do, we don't always. And and the word of God has a way of just opening up our our eyes to where we fail in God's ways. Um, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Why don't you read that for us, David? Yeah, and this is a a great memory verse. Uh, Hebrews 4.12, and this is in the NLT. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. There's things that are otherwise kind of inseparable. That's just showing how sharp it is. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. As we you know, go through the rest of this book of Ezra, we're going to see that that's exactly what the Word of God does uh, for the people of Israel in this, in this time. The law of Yahweh, or the Word of God, the law of Moses, the, this Torah that, they're, uh, that Ezra is teaching them is going to be revealing what's not right in the, the lives and the hearts of the people. So we're going to go ahead and start reading in, in chapter 9 of Ezra. You okay, going Keep into going. it. All right, let's let's get into it. <clears throat> and then I'll be reading now. Most of these will, references will be in the CSB. After these things had been done, the leaders approached me and said, "The people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, have not separated themselves from the surrounding peoples whose detestable practices are like those of the Canaanites, the Hephites, the Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites." Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. It's one of the reasons I wanted you to read it. <laughs> Just to read all the names. Yeah, and the names are actually important in this case. Yeah. We'll get to that. Indeed, the Israelite men have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed has become mixed with the surrounding peoples. The leaders and officials have taken the lead in this unfaithfulness. Yeah, so here we go. We start out our passage with that phrase, after these things. It's another one of those vague time phrases, which means some time has passed. Um, Actually, Ezra reached Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, and the measures that they're dealing with now with intermarriage uh, are announced on the 17th day of the ninth month. So four and a half months after his arrival, they're addressing this issue. This issue is brought up to them. So that after these things is about four and a half months after Ezra shows up on the scene. Um, So after months of following God's law in regard to sacrifices, in regard to purity, in regard to um, all the different laws and things they had to do as a community, um, after after months of that, there's this other issue that comes up. Um, Apparently, the people were getting it, though. And I think that that's one of the cool things. Because after four and a half months of Ezra being there, some of the leaders approach Ezra and say, listen, we have failed God in this way. And if you're Ezra and you're teaching the law and people come to you and say, 
we didn't do this right. We need to change something. I mean, what more could you want as a teacher, right? But to know that they got it and they want to do something about it. So I think that's really awesome. Mm-hmm. And one of those big encouraging things is that Ezra shows up and teaches the law and they get it. But now they have the situation. Yeah, it's, kind of, it's bad news, but it's also good news because they're recognizing that it's bad news. Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. And what's yeah. the issue that they had? So the issue is the, the, the marrying of, of the wives specifically, right? And, and, and giving the, the foreign wives to their sons and all of this. And yeah, but, so, so what's wrong with that? Yeah, what, understand why this is an issue. We can go back to the law um, in Deuteronomy. And I think you'll see what their concern was if we just reference the the books that they were, the, the scrolls that they were referencing. Um, so in this case, we can find a pretty direct reference to this issue in Deuteronomy chapter 7, mm-hmm. uh, starting right in verse 1. So this is when Moses was communicating the, the terms of God's covenant with his people um, in in the wilderness. So this is Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, and he drives out many nations before you. <laughs> Look at these names. <laughs> the Hethites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Seven nations more numerous and powerful than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you and you defeat them, you must completely destroy them. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. You must not intermarry with them. There it is. And you must not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons because they will turn your sons away from me Mm. to worship other gods. That's the big key verse right there. Because. Why does this all matter? Because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will swiftly destroy you. Instead... This is what you are to do to them. Tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their carved images. For you are a holy people belonging to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. So this concern with the the intermarrying with the the foreign their, their foreign neighbors, was that they would turn away to worship other gods. That was the, the primary motivation um, behind this command. They were meant to be a holy people. They were meant to be set apart from the rest. And eventually, we know if we go back to the promise to Abraham, they were called to be holy so that they would bless other people, but they were not going to be a blessing to other nations if, until they were first uh, set apart as a nation, as God's people. Yeah. Now, the passage in Deuteronomy listed seven nations, but there's three other nations listed in Ezra chapter 9, um, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Egyptians. Well, we obviously know quite a bit about the Egyptians. Anybody have a clue where the Ammonites and Moabites came from? Nope. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, Ammon and Moab, Absolutely. Uh, in Genesis 19, there's the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and Lot's daughters attempt to, prefer to preserve their family line by sleeping with their father. And out of those relationships, there's two sons, and those two lines are the Ammonites and the Moabites. Um, and those two lines are actually at odds uh, against the, uh, the descendants of Abraham. 
um, for quite a bit. Now, Solomon actually struggled with these same gods. And Solomon, uh, in 1 Kings 11, uh, verse 1, 5, 7, 33, the whole chapter 11 of 1 Kings, Solomon was ensnared by the gods of, of Ammon, which is an interesting thing. That Solomon took all these foreign wives, and his downfall was that he started worshiping their gods. So this command going back to Deuteronomy, we see it playing out in a couple mm-hmm. different places. We their definitely see it there. Proved, proved it. <laughs> proved that that's exactly yes. what happens. Yeah, and it was because of his, uh, his idolatry, his, his adultery to God, his breaking of his covenant with God and worshiping these other gods, that Yahweh took the kingdom away from Solomon, and actually the kingdom from that point on was divided ten, to ten and to two. We talked about the northern and the southern kingdom when we went through that time. It was because of the fact that he followed these other gods from the foreign wives that he had because he had intermarried and he had taken their gods to be his, which is exactly what God would say. It said would happen in mm-hmm. the book of Deuteronomy. Um, so now the, the first group, we talked about this in, the, in chapters one through six, the first group mm-hmm. of exiles that came back, some of the surrounding people, they, they called them their enemies, came and said, we want to help you rebuild the temple. Do you remember that part? We want to help you rebuild the temple because we follow Yahweh too, which kind of meant implied as well as all of the rest of the gods that we have, because they're not going to give up their, their local gods. But we follow, we follow Yahweh too. We want to help you. And the exiles that came back, that 50,000 uh, that came back originally, said, no, you have no place in this. And it's questionable whether that was truly just a zealous, God-fearing answer, or whether there was some other heart motives going on there. We talked about that some too. But they understood that they needed to be separated from the nations around them. Regardless of what their motives were, they knew they had to be separated. So here we are 60 years later, and we find out that some of them uh, intermarried, that some of them took wives from these foreign nations. So something has changed in that 60 years where this idea of being separated has totally flipped. If it is any of those same people, then obviously their motives weren't in the right place because True. they wouldn't help them, let them True. help build the temple, but then they'll just take them their wives. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think we need to make a really bold statement here because we're talking about intermarriage, and we have to just, just get it out there that the Bible is not against interracial marriages. Okay, can we get that out there? The Bible does not teach anything as far as you shouldn't marry someone from a different race from you. Um, other than the laws that were given to the Jews for the purpose of spiritual purity, there are not teachings in the Scripture that say don't marry somebody who's of a different uh, background. The Bible yeah, is not very different. You know, there are moral teachings in, in the Old Testament that still apply. This was a very specific cultural, contextual mm-hmm. commandment for those people at that time. And it's important to make that distinction when we're looking at Old Testament commands. And it's not that we're picking and choosing what to believe. It's that some things are you have to look at the context of everything that's, right. that's going on. That's right. The Bible is not racist. <laughs> it's no. not uh, it's not supremacist. It's not designed to be that way, even though there are people that will call themselves ministers of the gospel and will abuse the gospel to teach those things. Um, but I want to say that this, the Bible is not um, racist, it's not supremacist, and it's certainly not against interracial marriage. Um, if you really want proof of that, just check out the genealogy of Christ in the book of Matthew chapter 1, and uh, you'll find out that actually there are several people in that list who were not Jews, who were brought into the Jewish family and became part of the lineage of the Messiah. 
Um, so mm-hmm. just keep that, I guess. And then Christ himself kind of revealed God's intention of including all the nations in his family. Um, and you read all about that in the whole New Testament. So. Yeah, we're going to get there eventually. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lord willing. <laughs> so just in case you missed it, um, let's have David read another passage from the Torah in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Yeah, this is twelve, chapter 12 of Deuteronomy. Uh, we were in chapter 7, I believe. So this is just a couple chapters later on and starting in verse 29. When the, when the Lord your God annihilates the nations before you, which you are entering to take possession of, and you drive them out and live in their land, be careful not to be ensnared by their ways after they have been destroyed before you. Do not inquire about their gods, asking, how did these nations worship their gods? I'll also do the same. You must not do the same to the Lord your God, because they practice every detestable act which the Lord hates. For their gods. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Be careful to do everything I command you. Do not add anything to it or take anything away from it. So again, you see that the priority is obviously on the spiritual mm-hmm. side of things. That's that's the motivating factor, the driving factor as to why they weren't supposed to to intermix and it's like because that. the practices of worshiping these other gods were horrible, horrifying. They would do terrible things to themselves and their children, and, and it, was, it was detestable to God because they were things that should be horrifying to us even today. Well, and that brings up a point. So if they were that detestable, don't you think that as a God follower, as a Jew, you would like want to avoid that? I mean, wouldn't, shouldn't that be detestable to you as well? You would think so. So it kind of raises the question, well, why would some of the Jews choose to intermarry? If they knew that it was commanded, maybe they didn't know. If they knew that the gods of the surrounding countries did horrible things for their gods, did they have a moral compass that would have said, don't don't be involved in that? Um, Why would they choose to intermarry? Now, it's interesting when you start to research that, Ezra chapter 2 lists about 29,000 people, men, that came back. If you look in Nehemiah, it's about 31,000. And they say that 42,360 people returned, and that would be the, there's actually like more than that, because then there were also the servants that returned, which is what makes it like 50,000. So 30,000 would have been likely just the number of men over age 12. That means there's only about 12,000 women and children for thirty-eight thousand, uh, for I'm sorry, for thirty thousand men. <laughs> While that may seem insignificant, it may have been a factor in why some of the Jews intermarried, because there would not be enough Jewish women for all the men, and you want to make sure that your family line continues because your family line is your tie to the land, the tie to your possession, the tie to the promise of God. So if you have no wife because there's not enough women, you got to find a wife. And that could be one of the reasons, um, maybe. Um, But the issue is not just that they had disobeyed the law. The issue really is that they had broken their marriage covenant with God. They had broken their relationship with God. And this idea of mixing worldly gods with the true worship and obedience to Yahweh, this is really the original conflict in the garden. This is Adam and Eve with the serpent in the garden. This is every great conflict of Scripture comes down to God says this, will you listen and obey, or will you do it your way? 
Right. Wow. Must be the meds. Like yeah. <laughs> will so, you listen and obey, or will you do it your way? There you go. Yeah. So, so what do you do when you're faced with that kind of situation? The problem's been identified. What do the people do? There's two reactions that we find in uh, the rest of chapter 9 and then in chapter 10, and that's where we want to focus the rest of our time this morning. Uh, one of the actions is exemplified through Ezra. The other one we actually see enacted by the people. The leaders um, are the ones that initiate it. So uh, chapter 9, verses 3 through 15. All right, this is right after Ezra heard this report of all of the, you know, the sin that the people had fallen into. And speaking again in first person, uh, as Ezra does. <laughs> yep. When I heard this report, I tore my tunic and robe, pulled out some of the hair from my head and beard. Which hurts, by the way. <laughs> and, and I like that it's only some of the hair. Some, okay. So then you're just picturing like this patchy, <laughs> patchy beard spots. and head. It's like different from just shaving your head. It's like. Some of his hair. I have tears it's thinking like about worse. it. I really yeah. do. <laughs> it would be horrible. Pulled out some of the hair from my head and beard and sat down devastated. Everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles while I sat devastated until the evening offering. At the evening offering, I got up from my time of humiliation with my tunic and robe torn. Then I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, my God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face towards you, my God, because our iniquities are higher than our heads and our guilt is as high as the heavens. Our guilt has been terrible from the days of our ancestors until the present. Because of our iniquities, we have been handed over along with our kings and priests to the surrounding kings, and to the sword, captivity, plundering, and open shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, grace has come from the Lord our God to preserve a remnant for us and give us a stake in his holy place. Even in our slavery, God has given us a little relief and light to our eyes. Though we are slaves, our God has not abandoned us in our slavery. He has extended grace to us in the presence of the Persian kings, giving us relief so that we can rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Now, our God, what can we say in light of this? For we have abandoned the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets, saying, the land you are entering to possess is an impure land. This is He's basically quoting Deuteronomy here. The surrounding peoples have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness by their impurity and detestable practices. So do not give your daughters to, the, to their sons in marriage or take their daughters for your sons. Never pursue their welfare or prosperity so that you will be strong. Eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. After all that has happened to us because of our evil deeds and terrible guilt, through you, our God, or though you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have allowed us to survive, should we break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit these detestable practices? Wouldn't you become so angry with us that you would destroy us, leaving neither remnant nor survivor? 
Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we survive as a remnant today. Here we are before you with our guilt, though no one can stand in your presence because of this. It's quite a powerful prayer uh, on Ezra's part. And I think that this shows us um, the first part of a response to that question that we started with of when confronted with our own sinfulness before God, how do we respond? Or how should we respond? Because I know how sometimes we respond is not always the way we should respond, okay? I mean, you, you see it in your kids uh, probably more than you want to see it in yourself, right? Um, when, when you're caught doing, when the, you ever catch your kids doing something they're not supposed to be? I, you guys probably never did. I understand that. Um, but let's say you caught, you know, kids will be like, uh, you know, did you take that cookie? Nope. You know, like still chewing it, and it's like, nope. Um, well, there's, there's different kinds of kids, too, I'm sure, because there's some kids who are like, yep, I did. Yeah. <laughs> and others are like, no. <laughs> you should be praying for David's mom. <laughs> right? We don't always respond the way we should, but, but how do we respond when we're confronted with our own sinfulness? And the first thing should be confession, and that's where Ezra starts. He starts in chapter 9, verse 6, with this humbling of himself. And I think the last place that we often want to go when confronted with our sinfulness is to God. And I think one of the reasons is because of the shame that we feel. Like Peter, when he denied Jesus three times, and he went to run and hide because of his shame. Like Adam in the garden, after they had sinned, and they heard God coming, and Adam and Eve both went and they hid from God because of their shame. I think it's natural for us, human for us, when we sin and we know we've done wrong, to want to hide because of our shame. However, we're reminded that God knows our sin, that God knows our shame. And when you continue the story of Adam and Eve, God covers their shame when they confess. So reminded that when we do sin, and all of us are sinners, and when we do sin, it needs to start with declaring our own shame before God, like the prodigal son, um, like Ezra, and going to God in spite of our shame. Um, the next thing that Ezra, what's that? Were you, you going to say something? No. Okay. Yeah. The next thing that Ezra recounts is the faithfulness and the grace of God in verses 7 through 9. In the midst of exile, they have relief. He didn't blame God for their circumstances. God, look what you've brought us to. You've, you know, you've sent us into exile, and we're in all these blah, 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 blah. They, they didn't blame God. Actually, Adam did. Um, the woman you gave me, God, made me, you know, gave it to me. Um, as, you know, Ezra doesn't do that. He doesn't take the grace of God for granted either. Yes. I like that. It's in, um, well, we don't have verse numbers in here. Somewhere in the middle of there, um, he says, uh, sorry, I just lost it. For, just lost it. For a brief moment, here, yeah. but now for a brief moment, grace has come from the Lord our God to preserve a remnant for us. I just like that he's not, now we're just basking in grace, so it's all good. He's he's clutching on to that grace because he recognizes how undeserved it is, and he's not taking it for granted. That's right. That's right. God's faithfulness to his promises in spite of their unfaithfulness is something that's part of his confession. And, and recognizing that grace is a gift from God, 
that he offers to us freely. So Ezra counts on that grace, realizes that he doesn't deserve anything other than being punished, but certainly calls on that grace. And we have the right to do that too. Not only do we have the right to come before God and say, look, I've messed up and I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed of what I've done or what I've thought, but we also have a chance to say, God, and I know what I deserve, but I thank you for your grace. And then he goes on in verses 10 to 14 to specifically name what they've done wrong. And can I just say that part of your confession Mm -hmm. time shouldn't just be, God, I messed up. I think it's so valuable in our confession to get very specific. Mm -hmm. God, I have done this, and I know that you don't want me. I know you say in your word this, and I've done the opposite, and I have offended you. And I have broken my relationship with you. I've probably in the process broken my relationship with this person or with these other people. Being you very know, specific. You say that, say that, and it's that principle translates to not just with our relationship with God and confessing our sins to him, but with our other relationships with, you know, with our spouse, with our siblings, um, with our parents, or friends. Right. You know, when we're apologizing for something that, oh, sorry. You know, <laughs> sorry, he's not a good there's answer. Something powerful about actually being very specific about what you're apologizing for. Mm. It forces the humility on your part and it shows them, you know, that you're willing to to own what you have done to wrong them. Yeah. So. Laura and I went to a marriage conference that really helped us years and years ago. Um, and one of the things that uh, that they mentioned in that was not even just naming the thing that you've done wrong, but also specifying how you understand that it's hurt the other person or how it's mm-hmm. damaged the other person. Um, and boy, that was very powerful to, mm-hmm. to acknowledge the harm that you've caused another person, or in this case, even with our faith, the, the way that you have uh, offended or hurt God. Um, mm-hmm. Remember, this is, this is about relationship. These mm-hmm. Jews had broken their, their covenant, their marriage, their relationship with God by just turning away from what he said to do. Um, so then Ezra, in verse 15, declares God's rightness or his righteousness. He says, God, you have, you have the right to destroy us, and you, haven't, you have the right to punish us, and we'll accept that. Um, whatever comes, God, you're, you're in control, and we can't even stand before you. Uh, but basically, he's saying, we're, we're praying that you'll be gracious. Um, now, this is a prayer of confession, but there's no repentance yet. Um, there, there was simply the acknowledgment of sin, a specific sin in opposition to God's word, and the punishment that was deserved, and that God would be right in punishing them. That's, that's confession. But there's a difference between confession and repentance. I don't know if you realize that, but there is a difference between confession and repentance. For instance, I can get pulled over by a cop for speeding, and I can say, yeah, I was speeding. That's confession. <laughs> See? Yeah. yeah. That's confession. But if I was repentant of my speeding, what would happen? I hear it wet. You stop speeding. Go and speed no more. Go and speed no more. Should be, this should be like, in, <laughs> it's got to be in here somewhere. Yeah. Go and speed no more. Yeah, exactly. There, there would be a change in the way that I live if there was true repentance. And I think that's the second part of that question that we asked. How do we respond when confronted with our sin? It starts with confession. We have to acknowledge that we've broken our relationship with God and, and with others. And we have to confess that and own up to that. But then it has to flip over 
to the act of repentance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to have David go on for just a couple minutes here yeah. on this. And in the meantime, realize, you know, this wasn't just Ezra praying this. We read through Ezra's prayer, right. but in, in chapter 10, verse 1, it says that while Ezra prayed and confessed, weeping and falling face down before the house of God, an extremely large assembly of Israelite men, women, and children gathered around him. The people also wept bitterly. So as we're going through this narrative, realize that Ezra wasn't just by himself. It, his um, actions were serving to um, as, as an example to mm-hmm. the rest of the people and this extremely large assembly. Uh, assumedly, not everyone was repentant, but there it was he was successful in getting a lot of people to kind of go with him before God to repent. Mm-hmm. And you know the focus of this passage, he references the law, and we've talked about the law in Deuteronomy, but that's not what the focus of the passage is. And it's not even the focus isn't on the specific law that they broke with the foreign wives and, and children. The focus is on this aspect of or the concept of confession and repentance. And so we have, you know, the Hebrew word, we've talked about the Hebrew word before, actually, for repent. Does anyone remember what the literal meaning of the word repent is in Hebrew? The change change of mind, yep, that would be one way to put it. The literal meaning is just a, a physical turning around. It's to turn around. The same phrase in English, to turn around. So then it's applied to changing one's mind, changing one's heart. It's the word shub. Um, and the Greek word for repent is one that has more to do with, with the mind. Um, I don't actually know how to pronounce that, that word, do you? Metaneo. Metaneo, okay. So, so the Hebrew word is, is like a literal physical turning around. It's making a U-turn. Um, and then the Greek word is a little bit more conceptual with the, the changing one's mind. And, and you see the difference in that in the way that the Hebrew um, reader and the uh, Greek reader would find the center of your being, um, where the there's no word really for mind in mm-hmm. in the Hebrew. It's about uh, the heart, yeah. Um, and in the Greek, everything stems from the mind, which is why Paul mm-hmm. references that a lot um, by renewing of your mind and those types of things. It has to do with where they see the center of your life coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So either way you put it, you know, it's it's a change in your attitude and your action from sin towards obedience to God. Uh, so even whether you're thinking of it in terms of a literal physical changing around or a turning around or of a changing of your mind, um, the, the emphasis is on the, the action that, that follows that. It's not simply the confession of, yep, I did wrong. It's, it's doing something about that. And the leaders of Israel knew that they had done something wrong. They knew what they did was, was wrong in God's eyes. They knew they deserved punishment for what they did. They also understood the grace of God from their story and from how God had shown grace to them uh, throughout their, you know, to their ancestors. And so they knew also the power of confession and repentance, and that's what they were leaning into here. So we read in uh, verse 2 of chapters 10 says, Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, an Elamite, responded to Ezra, we have been unfaithful to God by marrying foreign women from the surrounding peoples, but there is still hope for Israel in spite of this. They have hope in God, in God's character, and who they know who God is because they know 
how he's been revealed to them through through scripture. But the repentance has to start with the confession. And it's awesome that Ezra led by example here. You know, he didn't he didn't go total profit on them and go ripping out their beards and hair. He, he did it to himself. He showed himself. Uh, he didn't scream at them. He fell on his own face before Yahweh and prayed for the people. And this is really similar to how Moses interceded for the people when they messed up right after making their marriage vows with God. They had the whole golden calf uh, scene with, with Aaron and totally messed up. And Moses fell before God interceding on their behalf. Uh, in this case, you know, Ezra isn't the one who took foreign wives, but he's putting himself right along with the people saying, we messed up. This is my family, and I am, you know, he's interceding for them, but he's also showing by example how to humble yourself before mm-hmm. God, yeah. um, and, and that's what he's doing. So it's, you know, you start with confession, but then repentance means to, to change direction. Uh, and that requires doing something, requires action. So it's one thing to realize you're speeding or to realize you're going the wrong way down the street. It's, you know, that's great. You can realize you're going the wrong way, but that doesn't really help anything. It's another to actually stop the car, turn around, do a U-turn, or even, you know, find the next exit, look up a map. How do I get back on track? It can be a whole process, you know, turning around, getting back into the right direction. So sometimes it's as simple as a U-turn. Other times, and we'll see in, in this case, it can, it can be a whole process. It, it's right. not necessarily instant. All right, so in, we just read verse 2, reading on in verse 3. Therefore, let's make a covenant before our God to send away all the foreign wives and their children according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the command of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Get up, for this matter is your responsibility, and we support you. Be strong and take action. So it's the leaders who approached Ezra that came up with this action plan. And they're, you know, they're saying we have hope in God, not just because, oh, he's gracious and he'll forgive us, but because we're going to take action. This is our action plan. And they encouraged Ezra to help enforce it. Yeah, when you hear that phrase, be strong and take action, who, what, what leader of Israel comes to mind right away? Joshua, absolutely. Yeah, it's like a flashback moment for me. Yeah. Strong and courageous, for the Lord your God is with you. And I imagine that for Ezra, that would be a tough thing to do, to stand up and to say, yep, okay, this is going to be a tough thing, but you got to do this. Um, Remember, this is actually, this is exactly what he was commissioned to do by the king of Persia. That's right. He has permission to to take any judicial action, either biblically speaking or from the law of of the Medes and Persians to make sure that these people fall in line. With. And in this case, the former is the more difficult, actually getting people to obey the law of their God, who they went back to worship in the first place, rather than obeying the law of yeah. their captive uh, captor, the king of Persia. You know, that's not the, the issue that they have. The issue is with their own laws and their own God. Yeah. Kind of sad. All right, so shall we keep reading? Yes. In chapter 10, we're now to verse 5. Then Ezra got up and made the leading priests, Levites, and all Israel take an oath to do what had been said. So they took the oath. (laughs) Ezra then went from the house of God and walked to the chamber of Jehohanan, son of Eliashib, where he spent the night. He did not eat food or drink water because he was mourning over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. They circulated a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem that all the exiles should gather at Jerusalem. Whoever did not come within three days would forfeit all his possessions, according to the decision of the leaders and elders, 
and would be excluded from the assembly of the exiles. It's a pretty harsh penalty for not showing up. In three days. In three days, yeah. During so, the rainy season. Was it really? It is, the rainy season, <laughs> yeah. makes it even better. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered in Jerusalem within the three days. Didn't have to tell them twice. On the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people sat in the square at the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. There it is. Then the priest Ezra stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful by marrying foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Therefore, make a confession to the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the surrounding peoples and your foreign wives. And then all the assembly responded loudly, Yes, we will do as you say. But there, but. Are, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah, there are many people, and it is the rainy season. We don't have the stamina to stay out in the open. This isn't something that can be done in a day or two, for we have rebelled terribly in this matter. Let our leaders represent the entire assembly. Then let all those in our towns who have married foreign women come at appointed times, together with the elders and judges of each town, in order to avert the fierce anger of our God concerning this matter. Only Jonathan, son of Asahel, and Josiah, son of Tikva, opposed this, with Meshulam and Shabbatai the Levite supporting them. The exiles did what had been proposed. The priest Ezra selected men who were family heads, all identified by name, to represent their ancestral families. They convened on the first day of the tenth month to investigate the matter, and by the first day of the first month, they had dealt with all the men who had married foreign women. So they made a covenant, and they followed through. Yay, Israel! I mean, this is not a story we get with them all the time, right? We get like, uh, you know, we'll follow you, we'll follow you, no problem, and then they make a golden calf. I mean, it's like, this is not part of their history, um, but as returning from the exile, we find that they're committed. They're there. They've made a four-month journey to go back to worship God. These were the people who were like, yes, this is where we belong. We are God's people. We're going to make the tough choices, even the tough choice of that trip to get back there and, and realizing you're doing four months of travel to go back to a house that's been pillaged and burned and torn down and fields that haven't been taken care of. Like, this is a rough time. So they were committed. They, they made a covenant. They followed through. And I think verse 11 in chapter 10 really gives us a good picture of what's taking place and of what chapters 9 and 10 are all about. Verse, verse 11 says, Therefore, make confession to the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. And then he gets specific. Separate yourselves from the surrounding people and your foreign wives. So there you have that confession and that repentance. Therefore, confess to the Lord and do what he says, because you haven't been. Confess and repent. Confess and do God's will. Pretty simple, but yet so very powerful. And something we don't like to talk about in churches, and yet confession and repentance is a beautiful part of worship. It's an amazing gift that God has given us. And we think that we talk about sin, it's a real big downer. Well, I got news for you. We're born sinful. Thanks, Adam. We're reminded of that from Paul. It's not whether we'll sin, it's what do we do when confronted with our sin, and God gives us confession and repentance, a chance to acknowledge where we've wronged him and to change and line back up with what he wants. Now, it took them a couple of months to do this, 
Um, and I'm sure it was very emotional for these people. You got to realize these men had married women that they had probably fallen in love with and had children and had to say goodbye to them. These are not easy decisions. These would be very painful decisions. I'm sure it was much easier for the leaders who didn't marry foreign wives to stand up and say, this is what we should do. I mean, they didn't have anything to lose, right? But imagine being one of those leaders knowing that you had done that and then standing up with all the people and saying, yes, this is what we need to do. Repentance is not always easy, and it's sometimes very painful, especially as we acknowledge the hurt that our own sinfulness could cause the people closest to us as well as to God. Yeah, and ultimately to get to that repentance, you know, we tend to talk about, and we have been talking about, repentance as an action, right? And sin as a behavioral issue. These were behavioral things, decisions that, that people made. We tend to think about sin in terms of behavior because that's what sin is, right? It's, it's behavior that goes against God. It's bad behavior. But behavioral issues ultimately stem from heart issues. And so to treat the behavior always has to start by treating the heart. Um, and, you know, there are some practical and helpful methods, you know, depending on what types of behavior you're dealing with. You know, you, you sometimes do need to address the behavior itself immediately uh, and directly. But true repentance to really change the direction of your life, it comes from uh, it, it goes deeper than just the surface change in behavior. There's a healing and a transformation of the heart that needs to happen, and only God uh, can do that. Mm-hmm. There's some great uh, New Testament verses that, that talk about this. Uh, Luke 6.45 says, A good person produces good out of the good stored up in his heart. An evil person produces evil out of the evil stored up in his heart, for his mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. I think the, the KJV is out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Mm-hmm. It's a great, great one to tuck away. And uh, elsewhere throughout the Bible, it talks about our hearts and our minds using the analogy of, of a tree. And our words and our actions are like the fruits of, those, of that tree. And Matthew, uh, this is Jesus talking in the same way. This is Matthew 7, sorry, uh, chapter 17. In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. Matthew seven seventeen. Yes. Okay. Did I, did I say? You, you started to. Yeah, Matthew 7. I got just so excited. It's Jesus talking, you know. Okay. Uh, one more, Galatians 5, 22 uh, says... The fruit of the Spirit, going with that fruit analogy, because obviously Jesus is talking about recognizing them by their fruit. He's talking ultimately about people, not trees. So mm-hmm. the, the people producing good fruit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Mm-hmm. It's because our hearts and our minds are corrupted by sin and, and the gods of this world we must be transformed by the power of God's Holy Spirit if we're ever to produce good fruit. On Romans 12, too, I think I 
quoted this one last week too, but it's just so good. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And that renewing of your mind would be, again, that Greek concept of, of repentance, of, of the changing of your mind to, to do what, what God says and being changed through the way that you um, live, the way that you process things. The brain was mm-hmm. the center for them. Um, so in light of this illustration, repentance would be like pruning off the dead stuff. It'd be like cutting out the disease so that you can have good fruit uh, in your life. And that, that pruning is painful, but the results are wonderful. And that's something we always need to keep in mind. So now, let's bring this home for us. There is no command for Jesus followers not to marry people from other countries. Uh, Christianity is actually the most ethnically diverse religion in the world. However, there is a command for Jesus followers to remain pure and unstained from the world. Which again, if you go back to the command to not intermarry, was about remaining pure in their relationship with God, unstained by the evil practices of the nations around them. Um, There's a need for a radical separation from the way that God's followers live and the world around them. A radical separation. There has to be a commitment to trusting Yahweh and not following the gods of this world. James 1.27 says, Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Unstained means removing, tearing away um, from among us the things that have become gods to us. Just like the Israelites had to take their, their foreign wives and children and send them away so that they wouldn't become tainted in their worship for Yahweh. God wants us to be able to see in our lives the things that have crept in, where they be, false gods have come in that we're serving, and they need to be severed and sent away. What types of things become gods? Money, power, sex, pornography, status, rank, education, possessions, social media, approval. Just keep the list going. Watch 10 minutes of commercials. You'll find out pretty quick. But this is no subtle act. The Jews needed to send their foreign wives away and their children. It was a painful thing. And for us to live in a way that's radically different, the way God designed, it's going to take radical action when we're confronted with our own sinfulness. Ephesians 4.17 says, Therefore I say this and testify in the Lord, you should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. They're darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. Went back to what David was just sharing. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity with desire for more and more. But that is not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you heard about him and were taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. And to renew in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity and truth. It's to take off the old part and to put on the new. It's to shed the things in our lives that reflect the way we were before Christ changed us and to make sure that how we're living is reflecting who Christ is and what he died for for us. 
This requires confession and repentance. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And 2 Corinthians 7, 10 says, For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. While we do not always think of them this way, friends, confession and repentance are acts of worship. They're the continuation of the worship for the Israelites that Ezra started. It started with mere activity for God, but changed to obedience to God. It's true worship. It's true worship. I want to, I know we're going a little bit long here today. We're wrapping up here, and I appreciate your patience. Kids, you guys have been awesome, by the way. You guys are awesome. Um, I want to thank everybody for their prayers over the past month as Laura and I battled uh, COVID-19. We're here today because of the gracious hand of God, and we thank you for your part in uh, lifting our names up before the Lord. I expect that my full recovery will probably still take quite a while, um, but God has already done some amazing work in my body, and so I'm blessed to be able to be here and to preach with David. Um, I'm blessed for you to be able to be here and (laughs) preach with me. (laughs) Uh, There's no medical reason why I should have been hit harder with the virus than any of my family members um, or anyone else with the virus. And for me, that just reaffirmed the fact and my knowledge and my understanding that God is sovereign and I am not, that God is in control, and no matter what stats I want to look at or anything else, I am not in control. My struggle began with 10 days of fever and headache, and when combined with a lack of oxygen, pain in my chest, and the inability to breathe freely, it made for some really rough times. My wife forced me to go to the emergency room. I was not happy, but I was grateful afterwards. At one point, I did have some words with God. Honestly, I wasn't sure if God wanted me to stay on this earth or if he was going to be calling me home. And I was okay with either. I really was. But it made me think about my life made me think about life as a whole, but especially about my life and what I had accomplished and what was important to me. My mind immediately raced back to a quote that I heard over and over and over again in Bible college. Maybe you've heard it. Only one life will soon be passed. How does it continue? Only what's done for Christ will last. Can I just say that's a horribly American works-based statement that shouldn't be a quote we hold on to? Can I just throw that out there? Um, the saying leaves behind the implication. It sounds really good. Though. It sounds great, and it rhymes, like, yeah. my, like I did earlier, right? Yeah. It, it leaves behind the implication that it's our activity for God that will be eternal. It's not. It only took 60 years for the exiles to go back on their word with God. Our activity for God is not what will last. I started thinking of what I had done for Christ as I thought about that phrase. And then it struck me, it's not what I've done, but it's what Christ has done. 
I reflected on my life, and uh, I thought about the big picture of the scriptures and realized that it's not what I do for Christ, but how I live with Christ that matters most. The God of the Bible Bible has been clearly communicating that he is more interested in relationship than in activity. It's possible to do many things for God, but not even really know God. Did you know that? God's commands to Adam in the garden were designed to teach him to trust and obey him and to enjoy being with him. And I realized as I thought about my life and whether God was going to leave me here for years to come or take me home, I wanted to make sure that as a workaholic, as a person of activity, that my life becomes more focused on knowing Jesus than just doing things for him. And that requires confession and repentance because it's about relationships not just about religious activity. David reminded us last week that what we share a passion about is what we talk about. I want to be passionate about knowing God. I want to be passionate about obeying God and sharing God with others like Ezra was. And the things that I do, I want them to flow out of my relationship with God, not to replace it. That means that when I sin, and as as a pastor, I sin. If you think I don't, you got the wrong impression. Wasn't I, that one thing that you, another thing you heard in college was never admit that you're a sinner? Yeah, I did. Your, if you sin, never can never admit that to your congregation. Like kind of Yeah, that's that's not good advice. Don't either. get me started on that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, that means that when I sin, I need to confess and repent, not because I have a command to obey, but because I have a broken relationship to mend. True worship is not just our activity. It involves relationships with others and with God. Jesus taught this on the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 23, it says, If you're offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go first and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. You see, the focus is not on the gift. It's on the relationship. When we sin, and we do, we all do, we break relationships with others and with God. And we've been reminded that God is concerned that we remain unstained from the world and, and that we don't allow the gods of this world to be the gods we worship. So I want to ask you the question I've asked myself. What gods have you been worshiping? These can come from all areas of life and in some cases even begin innocently and become twisted into addictions and idols that rule over our lives, which we destroy ourselves and those around us. It's a perversion of our worship. What gods have crept in that you've allowed to influence the way that you think perhaps differently than God would want? Maybe it's money and possessions. Maybe it's your work and accomplishments or sex and pornography or acceptance in society or control, (laughs) which I've learned a lot about over the past month, Um, and power. Maybe it's food and drink, entertainment and fun. 
this, that list refers generally to behavior and lifestyle, but there's different areas that become corrupted even uh, by deeper motives and desires. The seeds of sin that come from the heart, um, that's where this stuff stems from. And the most sinful behavior can be tracked back to a handful of sinful conditions or diseases of the heart, which are greed and pride and lust and hatred. You know, we don't often think of the fact that when we lose our anger with our kids and we just like totally get into a rage, you've sinned and you need to confess that. You've hurt your child and you've disobeyed the way God wants you to raise them. It's okay to be angry. It's not right to be out of control. We don't like to hear that. When you gossip, I know none of you would. But let's say you gossiped about somebody else and you're talking about them. That's a sin and you've hurt that person and you've disobeyed God. There's so many little things that creep in and they start that way. Whether it's lying to your boss about whether or not you got certain things done, that's still a sin. Oh, yeah, it's tax season. Don't even go there, right? What is it? What sin have you struggled with? Your language in front of other people? the way that you speak to your spouse, things that you've looked at on your computer or phone, what is it in your life that you know that God is convicting you, that the Spirit's telling you even right now is something that you've allowed to come into your life that God does not want? And then the question is, what are you going to do now that you've been confronted by that sin? If we're to offer true worship, we need to be willing to take our shame to God, to confess what we've done before him, and then to change our minds and our actions to line up. Yeah, you know, we, unlike the Jews, we no longer offer animal sacrifices on an altar like they did. Jesus put an end to that. He fulfilled the Jews' end of their, you know, their covenant with God on behalf of all humans forever. And we have the benefit of that. It's because of God's grace and only because of God's grace that we have been reconciled to God. So our salvation is not a result of our worship, whether it's confession or repentance or prayer or singing, or that's not where our salvation comes from. It's a response. Our, our worship is a response to our salvation. It's from within the depths of God's mercy that we are able to offer humble worship to God. Romans 12, I, I read verse 2 earlier. I'm going to read verse 1 and 2 now. I was tempted to read the whole book of Romans. I was telling you. He was. Michael, he really it's, was. It's, it's great. For chapter 12, chapter 6, they're amazing. whole book is like, if Paul wrote this sermon, it would take a lot longer, even though we're going late. But just read the whole book of Romans. Anyway, Romans 12, 1 and 2. <laughs> Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, in view of the mercies of God, that's the key there, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So today I want to call you to embrace a level of worship that's probably uncomfortable, but so needed in our lives and such a blessing and gift from God. 
I want us to take a couple minutes quietly where you are. You can choose to stay in your seat. You can come down to the edge of the stage. Some people prefer to do that. You can kneel where you are. Just stay in your chair and bow your head. If you're at home, you can kneel at your couch, wherever you are. And I just want to spend some time praying quietly. I want to give you a chance to respond to maybe some things God was teaching you or showing you during this time. And confess if God has shown you a sin that's in your life that you just need to rip apart and throw away and push off. And then make a commitment to repent and to change. So that you can experience the next level of worship by restoring your relationship with God and with others. So we're just going to spend a couple minutes quietly here. You're welcome to come up front if you want or right where you are to pray where you are and just spend a couple minutes praying, confessing and repentance. And, And be specific. If God has shown you something this morning that you've allowed to creep into your life, be specific and tell God what you've done and why it's wrong. And then be specific about how you want to make a a change in that in your life. So let's pray quietly to ourselves. Father, for us to remain unstained from this world means that you're going to need to do a lot of laundry. It means we're going to be calling out to your grace to help us not to become gluttons of grace. Father, forgive us for the ways in which we substitute other gods for you, other passions, other desires, and make them greater than you. Even sometimes, Father, wanting to do the right thing, but not doing it the right way. Father, I confess that I am easily guilty of doing things for you, but not just spending time with you. And I ask, Father, that you would forgive me for the times that I've been neglectful, the times I've taken your grace for granted, for the days that I run so fast that I leave you behind. I pray, Father, that you would Create in each of us a clean heart, 
that you would renew a right spirit within us. That, Father, you would search us and know us and try us and show us the things that are impure in our lives. Reveal them to us, convict us of them. Father, do not allow us to hide in our shame, but call us out. Teach us to embrace confession and repentance as part of our worship. I thank you so much for these gifts. I thank you so much for your grace. We pray that as we leave here today, Father, you will continue to show us how to mend relationships with others and with you through confession and repentance. Father, help us to live lives of worship and to make sure that the most important thing is our relationship with you and help us to reflect you well as we live in the world around us, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for sticking with us. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Mike, for being willing to come back preach with me. It's been good to be back. David has a note for you to read the entire book of Romans this week. Yes. It's actually here in the notes. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for being here. It's been great to be with you. I appreciate your patience. I know we did go quite long today. But uh, may God bless you this week. And we look forward to seeing you again, Lord willing, next week. I'm glad we only had 30 minutes worth of notes. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. Our program said we were 38 minutes worth of notes, I think it was, so yeah. it lied. 78. <laughs>